we will begin our time in God's Word where one of the songs left off. We're going to begin in Psalm 8, although the song on the Sabbath was very appropriate as well. Christian, Christian day of worship. So go to Psalm 8. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. When you refer to the whole book, you call it Psalms because there's 150 of them. When you refer to one of them, you say Psalm 8 because that's only one of them. I'm pedantic like that. Psalm 8. Okay. They say to wait until you hear the pages stop turning. And I do hope pages turn. Because you're here to hear from God, right? Amen. Okay. Every now and then I read what's not there just to see if you're paying attention. You call me out. Okay. Psalm 8. Let's read together. And I won't trick you this time. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord. Oh, I'll, I'll just read it. Thank you. <laughs> you know what? Shall we all read it together? Oh, we've all got different versions. That's the problem, right? So let me just, let me just read it. Thank you. Next time I'll think of putting out a piece of paper. We can all read it together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God has crowned the sons of man as kings and given them dominion over the works of his hands. Work, our work in the world is seen as a privilege that inspires worship. Our work is a privilege that inspires worship. The sermon today is about work. It's a topical sermon, but it will be expository insofar as we will exposit any passage that we happen to touch on. But let's, before we really dig in, let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we thank you for creating us in such a way that we can see it, that we can know it, that we can know it by experience. 
and not just by book learning. Father, we know that we are sinful and that the only work that we have known has been the work that's encumbered by thorns and thistles. And so, Lord, sometimes work hurts us. It discourages us. Sometimes we just want to avoid it. Other times we want to idolize it. We thank You for Jesus Christ who sets us free from ungodly approaches to work. We thank You for Jesus Christ who has done the one work that really matters, reconciling us to You. We thank You that that work does not depend on us. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the good news. And insofar as we've been saved by Christ, help us to appreciate what Your, work has to say, what your Word has to say about the work that we do in the world for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this sermon is going to talk about work. And I mean that in a really general sense. Our capacity to see a need or an opportunity to make a plan, to execute that plan skillfully, and to bring about some kind of good in the world. So I'm, I'm defining work at its most, in its most general sense, and this is not a strict definition, not a textbook definition, but it's a good enough working definition of work. That's our capacity to see a need or an opportunity, to make a plan, to execute on that plan, and to bring about some kind of good. So when I say that we're talking about work here, of course you can think about what your average American is going to think about, your occupation. Which typically we think of in terms of 40 hours a week. You're either exempt or you're non-exempt salary or, or, uh, or hourly. Uh, you're either blue collar or you're white collar or you're striped collar. Or, 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 you know, so so we, we think about our job, right? What we do for employment, which tends to take up a good deal of our time during the week. It includes that. But it includes much more than that. It can include um, volunteer work. Um, there are some people who have retired from their work for pay and are just as busy <laughs> working on certain things. <clears throat> not going to name names. Um, there, there are people who are just as busy working on things as they were when they were employed full-time. Right, and John Piper has written a book called "Don't Waste Your Retirement," um, because you know in America we do think about we we tend to think in silos of this is my job and this is my recreation and so on and so forth. But but the work we're talking about here could include volunteer work, which would be in a church or or coaching a a, a kids baseball team or or what whatever you do. Um, where, where, you're, where you're meeting a need or, or developing an opportunity. Uh, it can include household work, right? Cleaning a bathroom. It's, it's necessary work, right? If it doesn't happen, things start to smell. It, it's parenting, changing a diaper, grading someone's homework, helping, helping a child with their math. Um, 
It's, uh, it, so that's parenting. It can include hobby work. You know, we choose to work because we like it. Some of us are, are teaching ourselves guitar or, or taking guitar lessons or piano lessons. Some of us play baseball or soccer. Some of us, um, you know, just, we, we work on writing novels or creating art. Some of us garden, right? You're, you're weeding, you're pulling weeds out of the ground because you want to. Because you like tomatoes. And some of you like eggplant. Um, but, but you get the idea that we, we work, um, as a hobby. And there, there is some toil to that. There's some effort. And it fits that definition, right? We see a need or an opportunity. We make a plan. We execute and we bring about some good. So, so the definition of work that we're working with here is that broad definition of work. And, and even children work. Um, what, what do you, what do you catch little children playing? House. What do you, what do you get for little children? A kitchen set. Right? Or Legos. Because what, what are they doing? They're building things. Now, let's bring it back to Psalm 8. God chose to make the world. He's the creator. He made everything. He doesn't need people. He created people, but he didn't create people just to sit around and watch him. He created people to have dominion over the works of his hands. He created a world and said, here, do something. And by crowning people as kings, he's giving them a task. You have a mission in this world by virtue of being made in the image of God. That's who you are, and that's why children play house. Because they're hardwired to want to do that kind of thing. They can't help but want to get good at stuff. To accomplish things. To create things. To understand things. That's who we are. And the psalmist says, at the fundamental level, that's a privilege. And it includes not just domestic stuff, sheep and oxen. So you see verse 7, sheep and oxen? Those are the animals that we think of as, as domesticated animals. We can keep them inside a fence. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. We are stewards and kings over all of creation. We're responsible and answerable for all of creation. And by that, by virtue of that office, we are led to say, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Because we're uniquely situated to see God's glory because we are interacting with it all the time. Okay, that's Psalm 8. And I'm not teaching Sunday school, so I'm not going to say any questions. (laughs) This is a sermon, so let's keep going. If If you've heard my messages before, if you've heard some of my Wednesday night studies before, you know that when I try to cover a topic, actually, I'm going to ask you on this one. I'm going to ask you to participate. I often cover a topic in a three-step outline. What is it? Three-step outline for the story arc of Scripture where I try to relate our topic to the story arc of Scripture. What is it? Creation? Fall? Redemption? Right. Absolutely. Creation and fall and redemption, which is similar to the Gospel outline that God made everything good. He gave us things as gifts. We rebelled against God and brought about a curse where things are suddenly very difficult and there's alienation between us and God. The fundamental relationship which is supposed to ground everything we do is now disrupted. But God, in His free grace, and because He still loves sinners, sent Jesus into the world to redeem sinners and to make them into a new creation. So, Originality is not a virtue. And so this sermon is going to follow a creation, fall, redemption arc when we talk about our work. And uh, we'll spend, we'll spend probably equal time in each. So if we talk about creation, where do we need to go? Genesis 1. So let's go there. We're going to touch really briefly. I want to hear pages turning. Come on. Genesis 1. You're not here to hear me. You're here to hear the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And of course, we're going to begin in verses 26 through 28. And then we'll flip ahead to chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Do you hear that? God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We'll stop there. God blessed people and His blessing was to give them a task. God created all the other animals and just said, you know, let them team. Let them be there abundantly. The animals don't have a responsibility. They just are. But God blessed people with a task of bringing up children and of having dominion. Now, that dominion, lest it sound like, 
going to crush everything. Yeah, I'm going to exercise dominion. Let's give some further specificity to what we mean by dominion. Look ahead to chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Words that mean working and service and keeping and guarding. And the Lord God commanded to the man and so on and so forth. So, our dominion over the earth is also phrased in terms of serving, tending, working, and keeping, like guarding, protecting, preserving God's creation. And it's a garden. The first occupation, if Adam had to have a LinkedIn profile, would be gardener and king. Um, he was a gardener king. Plato has the philosopher king, right? Okay, if you haven't read Plato, don't worry about it. But for those of you who have heard of Plato, Plato idealizes the philosopher king, the guy who kind of sits around and thinks about stuff. God created a gardener king. And what does gardening teach us? How many of you have ever made blueberries? Raise your hand. No one's made a blueberry? How many of you have ever made stuff using blueberries? Yeah, okay. How many of you have ever made a tomato? You've made it? Wait a minute. May, have you made the tomato? You grow the tomato. So you, you set out the bucket, you fill it with dirt, you put the seed in, you put the water on, but by some mysterious working of God, a tomato comes out of that bucket. And then you can use it to make eggplant parmesan. Uh, uh, well, you need the eggplant too. But, okay, so gardening is an occupation where you tend, but the creative power is so clearly coming from God. I've never made a blueberry. I've killed a blueberry plant in my lifetime. I think the soil was wrong. But I've never made a blueberry. And even if I succeeded, I wouldn't have made it, right? We can only cultivate. And Paul says this about his own ministry. Paul, the Apostle Paul, when thinking about gospel ministry and who gets the credit, he, sa- he uses a gardening, farming metaphor for himself and for another Christian minister named Apollos. He says, don't elevate people so much. I plant, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So gardening fundamentally keeps us in our place. That we can see that, yes, of course, there are good tech, there are better techniques and worse techniques for gardening. But ultimately, you're, you are still depending on rain and God for the health of that plant and what comes out of it. And you can apply that to all occupations. 
There are better and worse techniques for achieving what you're trying to do in an occupation, but ultimately the success of the endeavor comes from God. What what do the Psalms teach us? Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keeps over the city, they they, they that watch it are, are watching in vain. So the ultimate sufficiency comes from God. Um, so Adam was pl- Adam and Eve were placed into a garden, but was the whole world a garden? It was a frontier. Outside that garden, there was a whole lot of work to be done to terraform the earth, to extend that garden. And even today, what do we do? We irrigate, we dig canals, we, we build pipelines to bring water, and, and there you have it. So, God gave the task to subdue the earth. Now, how are we led to worship God in and through our work? Well, what does Psalm 19 say? says the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay. And the, and the firmament shows His handiwork and so on and so forth. Every occupation has some kind of raw material that it's working with. That God... Oh yeah. <laughs> Every occupation has... Is the camera. Yeah. Every occupation has some kind of raw material that it works with. But that raw material is not just brute stuff. It's stuff that communicates something about the glory of God, the Creator. And you can't leverage anything in creation without learning something about the goodness and the orderliness and the kindness of God. Now, let me use some examples here, and this, this is where it gets fun. Okay. Who knows, you know, this is not a Sunday school. Centrifugal force. I, I was going to bring something to illustrate. It's probably just as well I didn't. Centrifugal force. Thank you, Steve. Everyone look to Steve. Steve is swinging his keys over his head. Why are the keys going around in a circle on that string? Because the force he's exerting is being balanced by the string so that it's held in a kind of equilibrium where there's centripetal force pulling it in and centrifugal force flinging it outward. And objects that are, that you apply force to them in that way where you restrain them with some kind of flexible string are gonna go in a circle. Okay. Now, if you're David, the King David, Shepherd David, and you're going out to face Goliath. And you've got a sling. Alright? Who here has had high school physics? If I am swinging something over my head and I let go, what direction is it going to go in? Is it going to keep going in a circle? It's going to go in a straight line for you geometry students. It's going to go in a straight line tangent to the point of the circle at which it was released. So which would be actually a 90 degree angle to the point of release. So between the center of the circle. 
I'm getting geeky on purpose here because I'm showing that geometry is involved and physics are involved. And David learned the physics in such a way that God providentially works through David so that when he let go of that string, uh, that sling, uh, and, and the rock came out, it went in a straight line, a nice little parabola that met Goliath right in the forehead, and down went Goliath. That's, that's some, okay, so God providentially works there, but wow, that's some skill. Right? Did, did God work apart from David's skill there? It was through David's skill. David had training taking care of them lions and them bears that applied to how he took care of that there giant. Next thing about centrifugal force, okay? You do this frequently. And if you have lots of kids, you do it even more frequently. In the modern era, we have washing machines, okay? When you, want, when you put the clothes from the washing machine into the dryer, are they dripping with water? No. If they are, there's something wrong with your washer. Because what's the washer supposed to do? It's supposed to spin. What happens when the washer spins? Water comes out through the holes and the clothes don't. That's centrifugal force. One last one. Okay, I know. Um, Oh, oh no, fuel last one. The amusement park ride that makes you throw up, maybe. Where they spin you around and around, and they tip you up in the air, and you're still sticking to that thing. I don't know what good you're trying to achieve when you go on that ride, but <laughs> it's centrifugal force, right? I was once given a little wooden puzzle where two blocks of wood fit together, and they had two, they had various metal pins inside them that slid together, and you couldn't get the wood blocks apart unless you took, set the wood on its side and you spun it and it flung those little bars out to the side and you could pull the wood blocks apart. Why? Centrifugal force. Last one now. Truly last one. Your seatbelt. Did you know that your seatbelt in your car works through centrifugal force? When you get in the car and you pull on that seatbelt, it extends across your whole body until you click it in place, right? If you're in an accident, why doesn't it let you just go forward, right? Like it was flexible when you were getting in the car. So here's the solution. That belt runs through a canister that has little arms in it on the inside and little, I guess like cogs or, or, or stops on the outside. When you fling the, the strap fast enough, centrifugal force kicks in, those little arms are flung outward, and they engage with the stops. And it catches the belt, and it holds you. That's just a simple physics principle that someone one day was thinking, how am I going to make a restraining belt that's not going to choke someone the entire time they're sitting there on a cross-country drive because i got to keep them strapped in place like an astronaut, 
They, they can actually lean forward and, and like pick up the water bottle that they have on the, on the ground. But then when they get in an accident, suddenly it sticks. I know. Centrifugal force. I hope that your reaction to that is, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Because God made creation in such a way that there are principles that you discover that you can use to do a job well. Even geeky math stuff like sine waves. Sine waves, which you graph onto a coordinate plane, and you're all like, oh no. Like, if there's like a mass exodus at this point, I wouldn't be surprised, right? Like, I don't want to talk about sine waves, but you know what? You need sine waves. Because sine waves have to do with the sine of X. And whatever X is, you're going to get something between 1 and 0. But the moment you say the sine of 2X, or 2 times the sine of X, that wave starts doing funky stuff when you graph it. It gets bigger or smaller. It gets stretched out or squished together. Okay? You with me? Just, just trust me that when you, when you do the math, the wave looks one way. When you throw in some numbers, the wave starts to shrink or contract or get bigger or smaller. If you're, if you're like an Indian doing smoke signals, or, or I suppose they really did smoke signals, or if you're uh, on a ship doing Morse code flashing lights, you're encoding a message via flashing lights with Morse code, right? In the same way, you can take numbers and code them into a sine wave, send out pulses and waves from your cell phone, and you've encoded someone's voice using math so that it leaves your cell phone, gets picked up by another cell phone, and gets decoded into intelligible English. The person who discovered sine waves had no conception of what a cell phone would be. No conception. How majestic is your name in all the earth that God has made numbers in such a way, and I don't even know how the physical components of this work, and I don't really know sine waves either, but that we can make a cell phone by understanding the principles of math. And you use it every day. And look, you don't have to take all my illustrations. I want you to find these illustrations everywhere that in any given occupation, we should be seeing the glory of God working itself out as people discover and leverage principles that God built into the world to bring about some kind of good. Because it's a sign of God's care for us that he put this stuff here. And each one of us is going to discover different things. And so you musicians will discover things about how harmony works. And you'll appreciate it, and you'll hear the beauty, and you'll have the ear for that. And, 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 and any kind of job will, will have techniques that you can be excited about and learn. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Um, 
discovered rubber, right? And all the applications of rubber. Tires. So, how do we glorify God in our work? The first answer was that we, the stuff of creation brings Him glory. And, and two, we worship God in and through work by imaging Him. God is a God who works and cares for, for things. And so should we, right? If we're in God's image and God looks for ways in which He can care for His creation, we should be doing the same thing because that's how we grow up into the image of who we were designed to be. Let's turn to Psalm 104. What kind of God do we have? Psalm 104. I'm going to start in verse 14 in just a moment here. What does God do in verse 14? You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for its setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. Lo, in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. So is God caring for the animals? Yes. You betcha. He's making homes for them. He's giving food to them. That's what he does. He's doing it all the time. Now, hold that thought. Flip ahead to Psalm 147 because I'm going to invite you to answer a question. I guess this is more interactive after all. Psalm 147. And we'll start in verse 12. Psalm 147, verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? And so on. Now, look in particular at verse 13. He strengthens the bars of your gates. That's security, right? Defense. How? How? 
does God strengthen the bars of your gates. Next one. Verse 13. He blesses your children within you. How does God bless a people with children? Birds and the bees. Um, He makes peace in your borders. I'm hinting at answers here now. He makes peace in your borders. How? He fills you with the finest of the wheat. How? How many of those answers involve people? How does God make borders secure? He gives us armies. How does God bless us with children? Ask your mother. Um, No, but you get the idea, right? We have children through ordinary procreation and parenting. How does God bless us with well-behaved and well-taught children? The, The arduous task of parenting. How does he make peace in our borders? Police? Government? Uh, Well-functioning transportation systems? He does it through people. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. How? Farmers. Right? So this is a fundamental Lutheran insight, and I mean Martin Luther. When you bow your head and say, give us this day of our daily bread, do you open your eyes to bread suddenly sitting on your table out of heaven? That's an anomaly. That was called manna. It's a miracle. Most of the time, when you say, give us this day our daily bread, God began answering that prayer when some farmer in Kansas got up early in the morning. Where some tractor-trailer driver got that wheat to a processing facility. Where some accountant made sure that the business was running smoothly so it didn't go under. And you notice God's providence the moment there's a pandemic and you're wondering, where's the toilet paper? (laughs) You notice God's providence the moment there's a pandemic and trash collection falls behind. Right? When when there's trash piling up in the back alleys and there are rats bigger than than a fox terrier, there's a problem. And suddenly we realize what God's providence is like, and he, and he provides through people. So when you pray, thank you, God, for this meal, you have thanked God implicitly for people who worked because it was God's pleasure to provide for you through other people, some of them Christians, most of them not even. So, we give glory to God, as Martin Luther said, by being masks of God's providence. We are God's hands and masks in the world. He's at work through us. 
And we do that in relationship under God. We, uh, God gave, gave a command to Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree. And that showed them that everything they did, anything they did in subduing the earth, was fundamentally under him as their Lord to whom they owed obedience. And he wanted to have them self-consciously serve him as, as their king. So that how their work was limited and governed was under him. Mostly an open-ended task, except it's under God. Now, that was creation. The fall distorts our work in multiple ways. And most of us, when we think of work, we can't help but think of it in its fallen condition because work is hard. It's really hard. And there's frustrations and there's disappointments and sometimes it seems pointless and sometimes it really does come to nothing in this world. Like it just goes kaput. <laughs> Projects fail. And we'll talk about that in some more specificity in just a moment. But our attitudes towards work become problematic. I'm not going to go back to Genesis 3 because I think you're familiar with the story, but you understand that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, he cursed the ground for their sake. And thorns and thistles came up out of it. And so the punishment fits the crime. As Just as we rebelled against God, now the creation rebels against us. There's a principle of resistance against you and against what you're trying to do. You want to have a baby? Okay. And, you know, now we have things like epidurals because it hurts. You want to, you want to farm? There's weeding to do. Um, much of our, our questions and concerns today arise because of the curse. Let's talk about wrong ways that we've come to relate to work. And there's, there's a twin, I, I want to, there's been volumes of stuff written on work, and I want to make this as simple as possible to sketch an outline without going super deep into all the implications. But one wrong way to relate to work is to shun it because it's hard. Like, dude, like, no. I'm going to do as little as I can to get by. Um, that's like plain old laziness and sloth and indifference and cynicism. It's a checking out. You're in Psalm 147. Flip a few pages to uh, Proverbs 6 because this is funny. Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from sleep? A little sleep? A little slumber? <gasps> a little folding of the hands to rest? And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Ants still remember how this world was set up. That you actually have to put something in in order to get something out. And the sluggard forgets that. 
The, the sluggard forgets the need to work to, to bring things in. This would be the freeloader. And the Bible has pretty stern and I would think pretty obvious warnings that really like you don't, you don't put a fine edge on it. Like the only way to put warnings across like that is kind of a two by four to the nose sort of warning. The Bible kind of makes fun of the sluggard. Oh, he can put his hand in the dish, but he doesn't even bring it to his mouth. I mean, that, that's a, that's a sarcastic way of describing the person who just doesn't have the stick-to-itiveness to finish a job. Oh, I started making an effort. It was an effort. Never mind. And so Proverbs is making fun of that person who puts their hand in the dish and can't even... Okay? Or like the sluggard who's lying on his bed and turning like a, hin- a door on a hinge, just tossing and turning. Um, whether you're in bed all day or clicking the remote all day, the Bible's making fun of you because you weren't made for that. And there's really no way to put a fine edge on it. Now, the Bible does not condemn rest and recreation and relaxation and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, I'll throw it in there now. The Sabbath principle. What does Exodus 20 tell us? Six days you shall work and, and do all your work, and on the seventh you shall rest. So far from condemning rest, the Bible commands rest and recreation and relaxation. But the ratio is actually six to one. Okay? So if you want like a, a, a balance of work and rest, there you have it. For those of you who like math, it's a six to one ratio. Okay. But the, the New Testament says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And it also says, um, I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Second Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Okay. It also says that if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel. There's no fine, this is an unnuanced way of talking about things. We are supposed to work. And if you're not providing for the basic needs of your dependents, you're in sin. Don't wait. Now, now, we live in a fallen world in which there are thorns and thistles and layoffs. And so navigating that's going to be hard, and there's a redemptive way of looking at all of that that we'll get to in a little bit, where, where I don't say this to burden you and, and make you feel like if you aren't measuring up to a 40-hour work week, 
you're somehow in sin. And I hope you know, I hope you know that, that like the principle is you need to be figuring out how to provide with whatever God's given you because our, our work is our, our ability to see a need or an opportunity, make a plan, execute a plan, and bring about a good. So you need to be on track for that. And that's, that's the principle. Okay, I don't want to belabor that point too much. Um, but that's, um, that's the unnuanced one. But there's a, a more subtly problematic issue with work. And that is when you idolize it and find your identity in it. And, and, and we'll have different tendencies to sin, and this one's mine. If I don't feel like I'm productive, if I don't feel like I'm making a difference, I get really discouraged really fast. And, and we'll talk about that redemptively in a moment. But um, the, 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 the temptation is the Tower of Babel temptation. So let's turn back to Genesis 11 as we explain it. Genesis 11. What did we say about work and gardening? We are supposed to remember that ultimately God provides. We tend, you know, we've been given the task, but it's under God. God is going to work through us. The stuff comes from Him. The abilities come from Him. The work is a privilege. It's a gift. And it's a human tendency to boast in the gift as if we created it. As if it, if we're responsible. As if we're the self-made man. There's no such thing as the self-made man or woman. And that comes out pretty quickly in Genesis chapter 11. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, this is after the flood now, they found a plain in the uh, land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Ooh, technological innovation. Okay? None of the stone stuff. We're going to make bricks because they're going to be shaped and we can build a little bit taller and a little bit higher. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So, aha, we are cutting edge here. We're out of the Stone Age and into the Brick Age. Okay, that's a joke. Um, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing these tech startup companies and the way they talk about their grandiose dreams and don't get me started. Let us build a city to, their he- to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. I don't know about you, but God already said, Adam, man, they already have a name. They're already told who they are, but they're going to make a name for themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they want security and protection, status, technological advancement, and they're doing it independently of God. And you know how that works out, right? Like God comes down 
And in mercy, he scatters them. He protects them from themselves. And it confuses their language and spoils that project, which was a, mercy, a blessing in disguise if they, if they understood what was happening there. So, it is our temptation to find our identity and our status in the works of our hands. And to use that for boasting. And it is a source of tremendous angst and envy and guilt and mutual comparisons as we look left and right, keeping up with the Joneses. It has fueled the higher education debt crisis. Because America has come to be like the star-bellied snitches, if you've read Dr. Seuss, where we think of the white-collar um, knowledge sector jobs as the way to arrive. To get away from the manual labor, to get into white-collar jobs, to, 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 what, and, and so the drive is, I need to get good grades in high school so I can get into the best college so that I can rack up $100,000 in debt, so I can get a good job and spend 30 years paying off that $100,000 in debt, so I can get a house with the white picket fence, 2.3 children, and a golden retriever. And feel like I've arrived. And you'll read newspaper articles as to like what salary figure do millennials feel like is I've made it. And I, I hear that like, Millennials are now, or some generation is thinking of like $121,000 and 540. Like, like they added, they, they averaged a survey result down to like how much millennials thought it would take to arrive. And that's what's driving people's thinking when they approach career choices. And it may not be quite so crass as making a lot of money, but they want to, maybe they're going to, write a narrative of I'm going to have a high impact job and I'm going to change the world. I'm going to revolutionize things. I'm going to change the way the, the business world works. And we have grandiose dreams. I work for a nonprofit and I deliver clean water to the world. Oh, okay. And all of these are, you know, these are good businesses, right? But the heart has come to idolize a particular vision. And we don't feel secure until we achieve it. Turn to Ecclesiastes 4. Because we're going to see both kinds of sin in play. We've seen, um, we've seen the laziness. We've seen the thank goodness it's Friday mentality. We've seen the I'm just going to try to do enough that I can. And I'm going to live for the weekend mentality. And then there's also the I'm going to burn the candle at both ends um, and maybe arrive someday or I don't know. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I'm in Proverbs. No wonder why it didn't look right. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity in striving after wind. How many of you have been in a workplace where the moment something goes wrong, the blame shifting starts? How many of you have worked with someone who prefers to keep 
all the knowledge to themselves. Rather than sharing best practices so that you can get better too, they keep it under their hat. It's job security for them. Right? How many of you have been tempted to keep all the knowledge to yourself? How many of you have been afraid that you're you're training your replacement? See how much envy drives? Now the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Again, we're making fun of the lazy person here. That it's, you just wind up consuming yourself. You're not living up to the image of God. It's self-destructive to do nothing. But equally, it's self-destructive to, to burn yourself out and, and burn yourself up. You're, you're just, you're consuming yourself in another way. We've got a middle passage here, uh, verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and of striving after wind. So there's a, there's a sense of, I want to work, but I want rest as well. Than to be really acquisitive, and I'm just like constantly striving. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, meaning like no, no family that he's caring for, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. That person is, is blind to the way that they are driven by envy or a sense of trying to secure for themselves enough security. When in a fallen world, you actually can't. Your bank account may get drained really, really fast tomorrow. Look at ver- look at look ahead to chapter five, verse thirteen. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. So, so this is someone who's worked really hard to hold on to stuff. It's even hurt him. He's taken pains. He's made sacrifices to hold on to it. And he lost it anyway. Because we live in a cursed world. And you can't guarantee holding on to that stuff. And those rich, uh, uh, chapter four, uh, verse 14 still, and he is father of a son, and he has nothing, uh, and he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. The person who wants to hold on to something, to have something that lasts, in a cursed world, is in for a rude awakening. Ultimately, you're going to die. And this is not, this is not a novel insight here, right? I, I'm not the first person to say you don't see a U-Haul at a funeral, right? Because they're not taking it with them. Now, here's an insight that we might not hold, grab onto as, as frequently. Um, let, let's keep reading. Verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. 
So the image is someone who has no gain and who really beat himself up to try for gain that he couldn't achieve. But where does this chapter lead? Verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Does that sound discouraging? It's actually supposed to be liberating. It means that in your day-to-day work, you will find things that you enjoy when you get good at it. You will be able to find satisfaction in making someone's day better. Because you are a mask of God. And He is providing for someone through you. And the having done the work well for somebody and brought about that good is a good in itself that doesn't need to be justified by some kind of end goal that you've constructed for it. Whether that goal is some kind of status or some kind of bank account balance. We seek to maybe leverage work towards our own ends rather than letting work be that which God intended it to be, which is our ability to bless someone in the here and now. And you will have fruit from your labor. Anyone who's cooked a meal and tasted it knows it. You write a song, you hear it, you enjoy it. Enjoy the good you have. The the disasters that might loom tomorrow do not negate the reality of the good that God is giving you today. If you are looking to justify all the goods that you see in this world in terms of some kind of end goal that you're plugging it into, it is going to become ultimately meaningless and pointless because your goals aren't, aren't worthwhile. But if you plug it into God's plan, then it is worthwhile because it's already fitting into God's plan right now. Do you see that? So when you do work well, you are imaging God and you have the opportunity to enjoy it. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. To accept your role, not as God, but as his creature, who has the privilege and the opportunity of doing good work, is your gift and your blessing to be received if you will have it. Now, you'll never receive it this side of the grave without thorns and thistles, but it's still there. Do you see that? The thorns and the thistles and the disasters don't lead the author of Ecclesiastes to say, it's no longer worth it. What the author of Ecclesiastes says is it's still a gift, and you can still say thank you. Okay, so 
when your work is mothballed, when you have spent a long time on a project and then your company is bought out and a million dollar project is set aside never to see the light of day, you'll be tempted to say that was pointless. But the Bible in Ecclesiastes says it wasn't. When, when you were laid off, you'll be tempted to say, what was it all for? But it, it wasn't pointless. It was still God's gift to you. So we've done creation, we've done fall, we need to do redemption, and I know time is ticking. But we'll, we'll continue with redemption. It won't take too long. Because really, like, how do you preach a Christian sermon without talking about the gospel? Now, when you think about your work in terms of the gospel, a lot of Christian thinkers will say, okay, is there a Christian way of doing things here? How does, the, how does my being a Christian change the way I do the work? And sometimes there are good answers to that. Sorry. Um, but I don't think you can think Christianly about work until you think about the gospel itself first. If you try to think about a Christian view of work without thinking about the gospel, you may actually wind up with a kind of works gospel of how can I work for God better. And if I can think about my work Christianly, I'm going to be more pleasing to God than the guy who's not thinking about his work Christianly. Does that make sense? And there's a temptation there to say, I'm going to think about work Christianly and I'm going to have a good worldview and that's going to make me a better Christian. And I, you know, obviously we should do that. But the first thing a Christian needs to hear about his or her work is that they are already accepted by God for Jesus Christ's sake. And that whatever they do with their work, they are working from a position where they are loved and accepted and regarded as a child of God. And there's nothing they can do that will make God love them more or less. Then they can get around to trying to think about how to think Christianly about their work. So, we, we talked about Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, right? And they wanted to make a name for themselves. We do need to turn to Genesis 12. Go back there. We don't have many more scriptures to cover. Genesis 12, because you need to see this. It's such a beautiful contrast, and we're just going to park on Father Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. See this with your own eyes. This is right after the Tower of Babel incident. So it is no, no mistake. It's very deliberate that the Holy Spirit phrased things this way. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, who, by the way, was just introduced to us through a genealogy, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make... Um, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And what? I will make your name great. Who makes your name great? God. 
The Babel people, they thought they would make themselves a great name. Abram wasn't looking for salvation. He wasn't looking for greatness. God just kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said, I'm going to give this to you. It's a gift. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you lots of offspring. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all the world through you. And what is the gospel in Genesis 15? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What made Abraham right with God? God did. Ultimately, let's go to Galatians 4. This is probably second to last scripture we'll look at. Galatians chapter 4. This is, this is precious. Galatians chapter 4. Um... We'll start in verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are so- your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Then verses 21 through 27 contrast Abraham's two ways of relating to God. Abram thought he could help God's promises come about by sleeping with Hagar and having a son that way. Abraham was trying to get out ahead of God. But God was like, no, 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 no. In Isaac, your seed will be called. This is a child of promise. What Paul is telling us here is that God has given us our sonship through promise and through grace. Christ redeemed us from the law. We don't relate to God as as slaves. We relate to God as sons. We don't relate to God through performance We relate to God as sons. Why? Because Jesus Christ came and died for his people. And God sees his people in terms of Christ. Your sins are forgiven, not because you've worked hard enough, but because Jesus died for you. You're accounted righteous, not because you're righteous, but because Christ lived righteously for you. So when God looks at you, He's not looking for performance. He's accepted you as a son. You don't need to be insecure about your status with God. You don't even need to like worry, am I being as effective for God or not as I can? Like, 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 Obviously, we should try to be effective for God. But your acceptance with Him is entirely of grace. 
There's nothing you can do to make him love you more than he already does. And that is the first word you need to hear when you go to work. That liberates us from worrying about how well we're doing as if it's going to somehow affect our relationship with God. You can get to work in a way that's liberated. Now, once you actually show up at work, is there a way to be Christian at work? Well, of course there is. There's the fruit of the Spirit, right? There's, there's all kinds of Christian ethics. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. There's ways to be a peacemaker at work, resolving conflict. There's ways to be joyful at work, not complaining. The fruit of the Spirit is, a, is kind of a catch-all ethic, right? Like, we can try to work on the fruit of the Spirit everywhere we go. Which, by the way, notice it's, it's, it's fruit. It's fruit worked in and through us. That metaphor of, of God working in us. But it, it's, it's, it's fruit of the Spirit that you can live at home, in your neighborhood, in your church, and on the job. Is there a specifically Christian way of thinking about work? Absolutely, and there have been books written on that. I want to bring about I want, I want to talk about just one, really. Um, and the last scripture we'll look at is Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Last, last scripture passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. And we're, I mean, this, this passage is preached on a lot when it comes to work. We'll hit on kind of a fundamental point about it. Slaves. All right, slaves. So if people who had little discretion over how they market their skills could obey this, how much more can you, who can choose where you work and what you try, should be able to obey this? All right? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So we're serving God, fundamentally. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. The status and the temptations of pleasing people in this world is relativized when it's put next to pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. All the angst about our performance review, what our coworkers think about us, is subservient to what we do for Jesus Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Right? We're supposed to be heart transformed. We're not just going through the motions. We have a real heart investment in serving Christ through our work. Rendering service with the goodwill as to the Lord and not man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. Masters, you may think you get all the power. You're under Christ too. The way you treat the people under you who have to listen to you and put up with you matters. Master, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Are, are, you, are you trying to 
beat people into line or are you trying to bring about effective work? And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So there are, there's a reality to a human hierarchy where some of us work for each other, right? But there's one God who's put us in our place, who's directing us to the different responsibilities that we have. And if you have ingested what we've talked about today, is there a distinctly Christian way of looking at work? Well, a way you can serve God in your work is simply doing it well. Which means thinking about and finding ways to do it better. It will transform your thinking because for those of you who are tempted to hold the knowledge to yourself, you actually want your coworkers to do a better job too. Because when your coworkers are doing a better job, people are better served and God is better glorified and your coworkers have better access to see the glory of God. And when it comes to taking blame, you just go ahead and take the blame because you fix a problem faster when you're honest about it. And if there's some fallout from that, you're okay with that because work goes better and people are served better when the problem is addressed sooner and accurately, regardless of who gets the credit or gets the blame. You look to train talent. You make suggestions about how to do a better job. There's continuous improvement. You find ways to exercise your image of being made of the image of God. You discover the talents that you've had. You seek out advice. And when we think about loving people, we often think about like, you know, cooking the meals or giving them rides and things like that. But do you realize that returning a phone call to a client in a timely way is loving them well? That not leaving a mess on the night shift for the morning crew is loving people well. This is, this is just, you're just loving people by being competent. Now we know this when a surgeon is doing the work, right? We expect the surgeon to have, to be batting a thousand. And we sue them if they're not. Which maybe you shouldn't. But it works if you drive for SEPTA. I feel it when the bus doesn't show. Right? We love people through competence. We shouldn't be indifferent to those sorts of things. So, God made us to image Him. We have a lot of heart idolatries and resistance to that work. That means that we don't want to do it well. And yet, Christ redeems us, makes us to be a new creation, to serve Him. We don't have to get status. He liberates us from that. But He gives us a new power and a new vision to love people. 
to love people well through our work so that we can continue to be, despite the thorns and thistles, masks for God and to love people in our work well. I hope that this will help you, whether you are employed 40 hours a week or helping a family member or just working in the garden, to see God at work through your work. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we thank you, first and foremost, for this privilege. We thank you that despite the thorns and the thistles, we still have a taste of what the goodness of work involves. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the blessing of participating in that work. Lord, forgive us for longing for the weekend and ease, uh, to, to, to be just uh, running away from the work and, and not thinking of it as just rest. Forgive us for being insecure and uh, being ruffled when we don't get the job that we think we deserve. For, forgive us for being insecure and worrying about our status in the workplace. Forgive us for not treating our coworkers well or loving our, our, our clients and customers well. Thank you, Lord, that we have the redemption of Christ. Thank you that Christ has liberated us from having to work for our salvation. Thank you that Christ has done it all. We thank you that we can work just for you and that we can take pleasure in your pleasure in us. And please help us to do our jobs better because we want to, we want to participate. And we want to love people well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.